0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Excited today? Good? Yeah? All right. Well, if you have your Bible, 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. While you're turning there, my name is Dan Hutchins, and I'm typically not the person... Preaching on Sunday morning, um, it was so weird last week for me in the 9 o'clock service. There was 30 people, it was spring break weekend, it was time change, and I wasn't preaching. I was like, we're moving up in life, that's what we're doing right now. And so, um, but my name is Dan Hutchins, great to be here, and um, we have a lot of Bible. We're going to read more Bible in this sermon than we maybe ever read in a sermon before. And so I figure that's a good thing though, I mean it is the word of God, I think that's probably a good thing. But we are going to read a lot. We're going to start in 1 John. We're going to make three points. The first point is going to just dominate almost all of our time. Like 80% of our time is going to be spent on point number one. So if you're looking at your watch and it's 35 minutes into the sermon and we're like, dude, we're still on point number one. That's totally by design. That's totally by design. So that being said, let's go 1 John chapter 2 and we'll start. Elderly man. He's later in life, probably the last of the apostles to be alive right now. This is in one of the oldest books. This is one of the latest written books in the New Testament. And John, right now, is a seasoned, elderly type of man who functions as a senior pastor to these young believers for which he is writing. And so, John's way of addressing these young believers is my little children. That's because John loves these people. John is called often the apostle of love. He's called the apostle of love because he writes a lot about love and because he just has a real loving disposition and demeanor towards the people for which he is ministering to ironically this book first john is what we're studying on wednesday night in youth ministry and john is a very pointed guy i i think it's interesting that as the apostle of love he says things that are very straightforward and very pointed but that is actually in fact how john chooses to love people by saying things that are just upfront and honest and so john begins by saying my little children this is Pastor, senior pastor, seasoned Christian, John, the grandfatherly seasoned Christian that's about to write some very important words to younger Christians. My little children, I am writing these things to you. Up until this point, John has not used I language. All of first, the chapter one of first John he talks about we and we're going to do this and we're going to walk in the light and we're not going to walk in darkness and we have come to do this. And then he gets right to the beginning of chapter 1 and he says, I am writing these things to you. This is like his thesis. This is after the introductory material of 1 John chapter 1, we get to chapter 2. I am writing these things to you. This is his way of saying, this is the big point for which I am writing. So if you're daydreaming... Stop daydreaming. This is the big crux. This is something that's very important. What John is about to say is a very important matter. I am writing these things to you. This is the purpose for which I am writing. Stop daydreaming if you're daydreaming. This is a big deal. My little children, I am writing these things to you. So that you may have a lot of money. I'm writing these things to you so that you may have a lot of possessions. I'm writing these things to you so that you can live a stress-free life. I'm writing to you so that you can have all of your problems go away. I'm writing to you so that your kids may be more respectful and that your spouse may be easier. None of those things are the purpose for which John is writing. Those are all secondary peripheral issues to John because John, the seasoned pastor who's lived a long life, who spent three years with Jesus, sees things very clearly and realizes that the most important thing for which he can write is that you you and I may not sin. Point number 1 is to see sin as the enemy. After spending years and years on planet Earth, John's an older man who's seen a lot of life and has worked through and walked with a lot of people. He spent three years with Jesus Christ and he gets to an older life and now he's writing to younger believers and the first thing he writes that is very important is this is why I am writing to you, my friends, so that you may not sin. And you have to wonder... Why is John, why is this the top of John's list? Why is not sinning the top of his list? After walking with Jesus and seeing people and seeing how people operate, we have to wonder, why is not sinning of utmost importance for the Apostle John? I'm so glad you asked that question. If you've got a Bible, let's go to John chapter 6. The Gospel of John chapter 6. We're going to go on a little journey. This is John's account of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Don't go to 1 John 6. You're going to have trouble finding that. Go to the Gospel of John chapter 6. Written by the same man. 1 John and the Gospel of John. I want to show you what I think is looming in the background of John's mind when he says to you and I, this is my major concern that you may not sin. First John chapter 6, at the very end of chapter 6, let's look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus just got done preaching a very hard sermon in John chapter 6, and a lot of people left. I don't know, that's not really part of the sermon, I just think that's interesting. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's talk for a second. John's an apostle and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes out and selects 12 disciples. I mean, this is Jesus' school of discipleship. And he chooses the Apostle John, and he also chooses Judas Iscariot. Judas would have been a guy that I think looks just like us. He would have been a religious guy. He would have carried around his Torah. He would have been a disciple if he was a disciple of Jesus Christ right at the very beginning but there was something inside of Judas at the very beginning it was a sinful inward desire for greed and money it started early and John in this he's literally right he's right here and Jesus starts talking about this man that's going to betray him they don't know it's going to be Judas yet that's they don't know. he looks outwardly like a religious priest a disciple of Jesus but inwardly he's got stuff going on So, flip over a couple of pages to John chapter 12. We see another little glimpse of Judas. Let's start in verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. What a great scene! And the house was filled with this fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That sounds like a great statement on the outside. I mean, if someone in your home group says something like that, we're like, man, that is awesome. Great, great on the outside, says and does right things. But this is what John observes about Judas. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it. And so this inward desire for greed and money and possessions starts to give way to outward thievery and stealing from the money bag. So we have Judas starting off with an inward greed, and now as he moves forward in his discipleship with Jesus Christ, that greed gives expression, an outward expression, to thievery. And then if you just go one chapter, John 13, this is the Lord's Supper right at the tail end of Jesus' ministry. This is what happens to Judas. And after saying these things in verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, this is John, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. Verse 25. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. It starts, this sin starts inward, then it gives way to thievery. And then it culminates in the betraying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess who's sitting at the table? The Apostle John watching all of this. He's watching the extent, church, to which sin can take you. He's watching a man eaten away by the devastation of sin and the destruction of sin. So later, 40, 50 years later, the Apostle John, older in life, writes to young Christians and says... My dear little children, I'm writing these things to you with this all in mind that you may not sin. Because church, can I tell you that sin is a real enemy that happens. It wages a real war against your soul. It's a real enemy. Satan and sin and his servants are a real enemy that wage a a real spiritual war against your soul. And John the Apostle knows this because he's seen it. He's at the table watching Judas get up after, but after greed has manifested in his heart, after there's been thievery, and then all of it culminates in the betraying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then later Judas ends up committing suicide, a horribly destructive path. I'm writing to you that you may not, since we see the extent of sin. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3. I want to show you some effects of sin in our soul. Colossians 3, let's start in verse 5. This is Paul's, this is just another way, I mean, this, the going to war with sin and seeing sin as an enemy is not just a John thing, it's an everywhere thing. So this is Paul talking about similar things in a different sort of way. And so let's look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That is war language, Put to death what is earthly, what is sinful in you. Now I want to expose what I think is a very real problem with a lot of us. A lot of us want so, we want the answer to this question. How do I put sin to death? We want to know the how question. How is it that I put sin to death? And while there certainly is a place for teaching about how to practically put sin to death, the main point right now is that we would at first see sin as an enemy. Because the reality is, if you don't see sin as an enemy, a real present enemy, you can have all the tools in the toolbox and never go to war with it. I think our problem is not so much the how-to question. It's simply realizing that sin is a real present enemy. And so Paul's burden in this passage and John's burden in 1 John is not so much to say, here's, how you, here's four ways to fight sin, although there are places in the Bible that teach that. The primary purpose today is that we would feel in our bones and see that sin is a real enemy. And if you don't see sin as a real enemy, you'll start going to war with all kinds of crazy things. You'll start going to war with your boss and with your spouse and with your kids and with your circumstances in life. And you'll never really recognize the fact that God God's trying to sanctify the sin inside of you. I was a eight-year-old. And my parents put me in karate. I was in karate for three, three weeks. I had a white belt. I never advanced past white belt. And I distinctly remember learning three moves. I learned the front snap kick... The roundhouse, kick, and I learned a way of breaking free from somebody. If a stranger grabbed my arm, what's the appropriate way to break free? That's what I learned. Three things. Then I quit karate. At that point in my life, let me tell you about my life when I was an eight-year-old. I was homeschooled. I was going to a weekly co-op with my homeschool friends. And outside of my twin brother, I had no real need for fighting. None. Occasionally, Doug and I would go to war, but it wasn't a big deal, and my mom would step in, and it would be resolved pretty quickly. There was no real present need for me to learn how to fight, so I found karate to be somewhat boring because I was learning all of these techniques, but never really having any sort of moment to actualize all that I had been learning while in karate. Now, let me me paint you another scenario. A couple of years ago, I bought a house, and about a month into us living in the house... I remember having a dream that an intruder was invading our house wanting to harm our family. And you know that moment when you get done dreaming and you wake up and you're not sure if what's real and what's still the dream. You ever had that moment where you're like, is this real? Well, I was still in dream mode and I thought there was actually an intruder coming into our house. So I wake up out of bed and I'm walking around the house and then it kind of dawns on me that was just a dream. Let's go back to bed. But if you're a man and you know that somebody is coming into your house and intruding to harm your family. I guarantee you in that moment, you're not thinking, man, I wish I stayed in karate. So I learned how to fight. Trisha, do you know how to did you take karate? I don't know how to. I didn't take karate. I don't I quit after three weeks. What happens is you freaking figure it out. You get into the living room. If it's me, I will scratch out some eyeballs. I don't know if that's appropriate, you know, karate. I he will have the front snap kick like he has never seen before. Cuz it does not matter, it doesn't matter. We are fighting when there's a real enemy, there's real danger, there's a real intruder. The how to takes a back seat and you just figure it out as you go. I guarantee you. That's exactly how sin is. The reason why so many of us do not fight sin is not primarily an issue of how-to's. It's an issue that we have failed to recognize the fact that it is a real enemy that wages a real war all the time on your soul. Amen. This is how John Owen said it. "If then sin will be always acting, if we be not always mortifying or killing, we are lost creatures." And he that stands still and suffers his enemies to double blows upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the issue. If sin be subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we be slothful, negligent, foolish, and proceeding to the ruin thereof, can we expect a comfortable event? There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled prevails or is prevailed on and it will be so while we live in this world my friend sin is a real enemy let me show you two lists in colossians 3 of five sins let's pick it up in verse 5 put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desires and covetousness which is idolatry the first list has primarily to do with this one this one category of sin called sexual sin I could get up here all day long and say, here are the stats. Here are the stats about sexual sin. Here's how pervasive it is in our culture. I'm pretty sure we all probably know that. So if I had to describe one effect of sexual sin in particular, but all sin in general, it's this effect. It's just this one word. Empty. There's an emptiness. Emptiness. If I, had to describe, I mean, I could get up here all day long and say, sexual sin is, is, is out there, it's crazy, it's pervasive here, are the stats here, are the stats here, are the stats. But I think what it does on a soul level, one of the effects of sin, is it has an emptying function. Sexual sin in particular, all sin in general. The great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus walks into our emptiness in the midst of our pursuit of this sexual sin or any sin as we are experiencing an emptiness in our soul and says, not only do I forgive you and not hold that against you, I want to fill you. I want to fill you. So that's list number one. If you're like, I don't struggle with that. List number two has primarily to do with relational interpersonal sins. I'm sure nobody struggles with that. No one's had anger or wrath in their heart before. Let's look down at verse 8 but now you must put them all away anger wrath malice slander obscene talk far from your mouth do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices We see the first 3 of that list is anger wrath and malice those are inward heart dispositions inward that take place inside of you anger at people and then we have slander and obscene talk. Those are outward ways in which the inner anger and wrath manifest themselves. Slander is simply another word for gossip. It's tearing someone down behind their back. Obscene talk is right to their face. Some of you, you don't you don't care about behind their back. You just I'm just going to say it to your face. That's obscene talk. And if empty is the word that I would ascribe to sexual sin, this sort of inner anger, bitter, jealous wrath that happens, the word for that would be the word enslaved. Enslaved. And we've all been there before. And the irony is the, the lie with the anger, wrath, and malice is If you can just get your opinion out and tear that person down and prove yourself right and prove them wrong and drag their name down, then you will finally have freedom. That's the lie. But we all know that after doing that, we find ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper in a pit of slavery than we started. The irony with sexual sin is the call is come to me and I'll fill you. But the lie is anytime we look back on that, we know that we're just emptier and emptier than we were before. And I love this prison analogy. I mean, it's an enslaving feeling, that anger and that bitterness. And the unbelievable great news of the gospel is looking that, that Jesus actually comes into your prison of anger and inward malice and wrath and says, I forgive you for these things. I identify with you that life is hard, that people are difficult. I mean, if there's any person that's been the recipient of difficult circumstances and seasons and people, the recipient of extraordinary, difficulty is jesus christ while at the same time not allowing his heart to grow bitter and angry he knows what it's like to live where you are in your suffering being sinned against we have a savior who walks into our prison and says i forgive you and i know i know what it's like and so many of us when we're in these prisons of anger we want somebody just to look at us and say i know and jesus says i know i know what it's like And he comes into our prison and puts his bunk right next to ours in the midst of our anger and frustration and says, I forgive you, not guilty. I know, I understand. Let's get out of here. Let me show you what freedom is actually like. Let's get out of here. And it doesn't change circumstances. It doesn't mean we get rid of people in our life. It's just a heart disposition. Just a heart disposition that changes. So we have sin, the extent of sin, the effects of sin, It empties and it enslaves. John looks at you and I and says, I am writing to these these things to you, that you may not sin. That you may not sin. Let's go back to first John. First point is to see sin as the enemy. My little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This next this next little phrase is just great. But if anybody does sin. That's a great encouraging line. That's John basically affirming the reality that Christians struggle with sin. If you're in the room right now and you struggle with sin, I just like to say you're in good company. You're in good company. And there's ways that people deal with struggling sin, struggling with sin. Some of you you get so dis, you're so discouraged that you continue to fail that you've just given up all hope and lost all hope that freedom can ever happen in your life. So one pendulum is to feel overly discouraged about our so much so that we just lose all hope that Jesus can come in and can really heal us and redeem us and restore us. And the other pendulum swing is We sin, and then we kind of just justify sin. After struggling with sin for a while, we kind of lose hope, and then we just think it's okay. We just justify, kind of close it up a little bit, and, you know, don't talk about it very much. It's just kind of there in our life. And what John is about to do for us is he's going to give us a third way to respond to sin, and it's unbelievable. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. So, man, if you're, let me just, on a church, if you're in and you struggle with, you are in good company And it's actually when we are okay, finally okay to say, this is exactly who I am, exactly where I am in the midst of all of my failures. It's in that moment that Jesus and redemption and healing tend to start really happening in life. Like when sin runs deep, your grace is more. This is like the song we just sang. So I just like to give you the freedom to struggle. And here's how we respond. Point number one is to see sin as a real enemy. Point number two is Is to turn to Christ regularly. But if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours. But also for the sins of the whole world. Turn to Christ regularly. Martin Luther said the entire Christian life is one of repentance. In other words, the entire Christian life from the time you're saved to the time you die is a constant, continual and ongoing turning and returning to the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. So when we struggle, but if anyone does sin, here's what we do. We turn to Jesus Christ and we consider these three unbelievably great words that really do summarize the essence of the gospel. The first being the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we sin, we turn and we recognize that Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life in replace of your sinful life. He was perfect, perfectly obedient to the law, from 33 years of living, never once sinned outwardly, never once harbored inner anger, never once lusted, was never greedy. He was perfectly righteous for you. The reason why he was righteous was so that you could have the righteousness of Christ and God could see the righteousness of Jesus Christ inside of you. He is perfectly righteous. Number two is that he was our propitiation. That's a big word that simply means he died a wrath-absorbing death absorbing the penalty that was supposed to go to you for your sin, taking it upon himself. The unbelievable thing about the gospel is God does not just organize this act, but he is in himself the thing that's propitiated. He is the one that takes upon himself the wrath and penalty of sin. He doesn't just get it together and pay the bill on on an animal. He actually gets up on the altar and is the actual sacrifice. He's our propitiation. So every time you sin, you can realize, you can turn to Christ and say, he's our righteousness, he lived a perfectly righteous life, he died a wrath-absorbing death by which he took upon himself the wrath that was supposed to go to you for your sin. And then we, we talk about those two things a lot, but there's a third word that we don't talk about a lot at all. And now Jesus is today, present day, our advocate. You know what that means? That means he's on your team now. That means that present day, when we struggle with sin, Jesus Christ goes to God the Father and says, Do not hold that sin against them. I paid for that. Do not hold that against them. Do not hold that against them. Do not hold that against them. Paid for. He's an advocate now. That means he's on your team. And then God in heaven looks at you now and says, I'm on your team. I am on your team now. I see the righteousness of Jesus in you. I see that your sin has been paid for. And all of that, church, the reason that whole process exists, righteousness, propitiation, present day advocate, is for the very reason that we can turn to him. That's the reason. It's not just a story that exists that doesn't mean anything for us today. It comes, invades us into our world and says, turn to me. I'm an advocate, I'm a friend. Don't become discouraged. Don't justify your sin in the midst of struggle. Continue turning to Christ. That's why He was our righteousness, our propitiation, and stands today as our present-day advocate before the Father. Turn to Christ regularly. See that sin is a real enemy. Turn to Christ regularly. Number three... So here's what, just to recap, here's what happens. When there's a struggle with sin, seeing sin as the enemy, not seeing your circumstances as the enemy, not seeing your spouse as the enemy. You know, I tell students this all the time on Wednesday night. It's so great. Almost all of them want to go to war with their parents all the time. I mean, it's crazy. They're so strict. They're so strict. Then there's this illusion that once you get out, you're like free of all authority. It's just an illusion, you know. And so I tell them all the time, you could go to war with your parents, but it's not going to get any better. Or you could go to war with the rebellious spirit inside of you that God is probably trying to draw out of you. They don't like to hear that, but I don't care. If you're a parent and you'd like to take me to lunch, I'm available. So I'm just saying, I don't know. I'm just saying. If you, don't go to, if you go to war with the wrong things, you never turn to Jesus Christ. If you go to war with your boss and your circumstances and your trials, and I think God, what God might be trying to do is draw out of you certain sin in your life. So when we go to war with sin, then we turn to Jesus Christ. We recognize His righteousness, His propitiation, and His present-day advocacy for you. And as we consider the great news of the gospel, as we turn regularly, regularly to Christ this sort of joy-filled desire to follow Jesus Christ begins to well up inside of us and out comes joy-filled obedience to Jesus Christ. Wherever and whatever you want me to do, Jesus, that's what I want to do. Because he's your advocate now. I remember playing, I wasn't so much a karate guy, I enjoyed basketball a lot more growing up. I remember going from 8th grade to ninth grade, junior high to high school, and having my first exposure to the high school boys varsity basketball coach. He was a big, intimidating, yelling man sort of coach. Big, intimidating guy. Yelled a lot, you know. And I remember my first month as a freshman, him being very critical. Him being yelling a lot at me. Very, di- My dad was the coach my 8th grade year. This is a very different scene for me. You know so this coach was yelling a lot, critical, you know, very detailed, very just nitpicky a lot. And I got so discouraged. And me and my other freshman teammates were so discouraged. That, and I even wanted to quit for a little bit. And my dad, I told my dad about it. My dad was like, you need to go talk to him. And you need to, you need to tell him how you feel. Which for a freshman, that was like the worst idea. You know, this is such a bad idea. But I went and talked to Coach Lee, Hugh, and I was like, man, here's what, I just, I feel like I want to quit. I feel like I'm doing a bad job, that you're always critiquing me, and I'll never forget this. He, I, he looked at me, and almost with tears coming down his face, started to articulate to me how much he loved our team, how much he was excited to coach us. He's hot on us because he loves us, because he wants us to do better. And just that small little change of perspective changed my entire motivation to play basketball. So I started working out hard, playing really hard, doing the best. And it was a total different change when I recognized that that coach was an advocate of mine. When you recognize, my friends, that Jesus Christ is your advocate. Out comes a surrendered, joy-filled, obedient life. Isn't that great news? What's unbelievable, I've got the three points right here. I mean, what's unbelievable is John... John doesn't just go from point one to point three. He doesn't just say, see sin as the enemy and then obey. (laughs) Right in the middle of this passage is a very articulate, gospel, good news, person and work of Jesus Christ sort of message. Right sandwiched in between sin and obedience. Because our life is not primarily about not sinning and obeying. It's primarily about filling ourselves with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you this last quote by none other than John Owen. I know Rodney referenced John Owen and quoted him. We're reading him right now as a staff. And yes, I did name my son after John Owen. Rodney named his kids Bible names. I named mine John Owen. Don't judge me, I don't care. The goal of the Christian life is not external conformity or mindless action, but a passionate love for God, informed by the mind and embraced by the will. So the path forward is not to decrease one's affections, but rather to enlarge them and fill them with heavenly things. To respond to the distorting nature of sin, you must set your affections on the beauty and glory of God, the loveliness of Christ, and the wonder of the gospel Were our affections filled, taken up, and possessed with these things? What access could sin, with its painted pleasures, with its sugared poisons, with its envenomed baits, have unto our souls? Resisting sin comes not by deadening your affections, but by awakening them to God himself. Do not seek to empty your cup as a way to avoid sin, but rather seek to fill it up with the spirit of life, so there is no longer room for sin. That's exactly what we're saying. That's exactly what we're saying. See sin as the enemy. Turn to Christ regularly. Joyfully obey Him. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.